All right, so today we're beginning um, with the book of James, the epistle of James. I really don't know to whom I want to attribute this quote, but the quote is, James is um, a belief that behaves. And uh, I've heard that quote for 30, 40 years. I don't know who said it. But I, you know, I believe that that's a true statement about that particular passage in Scripture. <clears throat> and for all that to manifest in us, uh, so we don't just kind of go over the surface and it never gets to our hearts, <clears throat> I think we need to pray. So, Holy Spirit, you are a heavenly comforter, you are a, you're a mentor, you're a teacher, and we call on you. Thank you for your presence here. Uh, we've, we've welcomed you. We've honored you with worship, and now we humbly ask, Lord, for your infilling, your um, fullness to come in us now, right now. Give us eyes and ears that we can make right choices in an aggressive culture that would stomp out our joy, mock and pervert our values that are drawn from the scriptures, and destroy our family's unities. Spirit of life, please come be the teacher and the mentor in Jesus' name. Amen. So this letter to Christians is entitled James. But which James? Because the New Testament Gospels, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John lists five different James. Okay? And none of them were ever called James by their mamas because uh, their names were Jacob. In, in 1604, there was a king in England who wanted to have a translation of all the scriptures that were available that they agreed on were canon from the Latin Vulgate to the Textus Receptus, whatever it was, all the snippets and pieces in Aramaic and Latin and Hebrew. He wanted to have them translated into English. And uh, there's no way to, you just don't want to translate all those words into Jacob because that's just too Jewish. God bless him. So all those uh, Jacobs became James after the king. Uh, but of the five that are mentioned in the New Testament, first there was a James who was a brother of Judas. Okay, not, not Judas Iscariot. This is a different Judas, and he was one of the twelve disciples who had a brother named James. Okay? Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, he fathered both a James and a Levi. And Levi was the one that Jesus called from the tax gatherer's table and said, you... You come and follow me. And he became Matthew. He, he's the one who authored, compiled, wrote the book of Matthew. The third James is called James the Younger or James the Lesser, of whom we know almost nothing. He's just it's like a one-off mention. And I suppose he could be any of these. Just He may have had a nickname. Okay? Then there's the fourth one would be James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, the guys who were fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. And they were both part of the twelve, called, called by Jesus from the boats to come follow me. 
And lastly, there's a James listed next in birth order of Joseph and Mary's children. So he would have been first born to Joseph, okay? Making him a half-brother of Jesus, along with Joseph, Judas, Simon, and a number of sisters. Now, there has been and is a continuing wrangle in the theological world over who the author was of this epistle, James. And evangelical scholars have mostly, not uniformly, but mostly agreed, they believe it to be James, the unbelieving half-brother of Jesus. So for the whole life of Jesus up to crucifixion, James wasn't having any of it. Okay? This James was born to Joseph and Mary in Nazareth and Galilee. Mary and Joseph came back from Egypt with Jesus to Nazareth. And then they started having babies. Um, His siblings were already listed there, but that's a problem. Because in the 4th century, there was a teaching that rose in the Catholic Church, late 4th century, called a Marianist doctrine that said, uh, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Uh, and so she's referred to in, in Catholic settings as the Virgin Mary, like as in forever, which, um, which is a problem because uh, her children were listed by name and birth order, and then the brothers of Jesus pull him aside in John chapter 7, and they said to him, you know, these were not believers, okay? His brothers weren't, weren't buying it, but they said, uh, Jesus, we think you ought to leave Galilee. This is really backwater stuff up here. And you need to get yourself to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And there you will have an audience for your mighty miracles. And even though those brothers and sisters had accompanied Mary to one of Jesus' mystery, excuse me, mystery, uh, ministry events, they were outside, they sent a message in and said, you know, have him come outside. Just, you know, have, they were trying to call him out of his... You know, he's preaching, he was healing, and they, he, they wanted him to come outside because they were convinced he's not stable. He's making a fool out of himself. And, and we're going to just wrap him up and do an intervention right there. Okay? So the, the Catholic Marianist doctrine has a long way to go to delete gospel chunks that include all this, these affirmations that Mary and Joseph had kids. Um... <clears throat> and to explain them away, or explain them away. I mean, there's, you know, you can try and retranslate it. Just leave them in the Gospels, just let's translate it differently. That won't wash. Okay, this, this James then, this son of Joseph, grew up in a market town uh, on a busy trading route just south of the town of Sepphoris. Now, Sepphoris was in northern Galilee, just right up the road, north from Nazareth, and it was a Hellenistic uh, Hellenistic Jews lived there, but they were part of a population of people who really embraced the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek value system. Uh, they, they were made trying to be less Jewish and more Greek because it was a cool thing to do. And um, in that existing market town in northern Galilee, in fact, all over northern Galilee, if you're going to be a merchant, you better be multilingual. So... The mother tongue was Aramaic. And if you went to synagogue, you had to have a little Hebrew. 
if you're going to be in the market at all to deal with merchants coming up and down those trade routes, you had to speak Greek. And then, since it was an occupied nation, Palestine was controlled and occupied under the iron fist of the Roman Empire, you ought to have a little Latin. Because you never knew when, here they come, they were marching up the road, and they were commanding people, and you ought to know when you ought to get out of the road. Okay? So, um, <clears throat> here is the firstborn son of, of Mary, and he, we know him, uh, Jesus, having been spoken of, that he was a carpenter, son of a carpenter. Okay? The firstborn son of Joseph... Forgive me, I don't think he was a carpenter. It's a personal opinion. Nobody's ever said this. I've never read it anywhere else. This is me. So, you know, I'll, you can throw rotten tomatoes and stuff. Anyway, I think, my personal opinion, that James, as the firstborn son of Joseph, was a merchant. He was a negotiator, an estimator, a manager for Joseph's carpentry business. And he kept the workflow coming into the business and the cash flow as the, as the merchandise left. So that he could serve both Aramaic and Greek-speaking clients all over Galilee. Uh, all the time, growing up around Jesus and watching him minister in Galilee, James was not a believer. But in the post-resurrection appearances that are recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to 500 people at once. And then he appeared to James. So uh, it's not clearly stated that... Um, that James was part of the crowd on the Mount of Olives at the ascension of Jesus from earth to heaven. But it makes sense to me that he might have been there. And it also makes sense to me that James might also have been part of the 120 that were in the upper room for eight days, ten days, waiting on Holy Spirit that comes on Pentecost, you know, tears, you know, Holy Spirit comes, flaming tongues of fire, everybody's speaking a different language, an unknown, previously unknown, unused, perfectly inflected language, and they poured into the streets on Pentecost and captivated a mass of people because there's millions in town in Jerusalem for, for, uh, for Pentecost. And Peter stands up, and Peter proclaims that, that this is what Joel prophesied, and, uh, and he leads 3,000 of these desperate people as new converts into the kingdom of God. It makes sense to me that James would have been integral in integrating and folding the 3,000 new converts into the house churches, house fellowships of those who follow Jesus in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 1, which we studied a year and a half ago, that he met James in Jerusalem when he fled from Damascus. Now, he, Saul of Tarsus was on his way to pour out wrath and awful stuff on the Christians in Damascus, stopped on the road, knocked off the horse. He's blind. But he's seen and heard Jesus. And uh, when he comes to himself and repents, then he takes his, his profound knowledge of the Old Testament and see, begins to see the connection, the leap between Jesus as Messiah and the promised one of Israel. And he goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach which causes a riot. 
They, they, some of them welcomed it, a lot of them were having none of it. And ultimately, he was, life was threatened, and he had to get out of Damascus over the wall at night in a basket. And where does he go? Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he tries to affiliate with the apostles. And they, they are like, wait a minute, you're the guy that's been killing us and, 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 and decimating, con- you, know, the, you know, you bust house churches. We don't have anything to do with you. But it's Barnabas who goes and finds Saul of Tarsus. And it doesn't say in the book of Acts that Barnabas took him to James. It says that in, in the book of Galatians, where Paul says, Galatians 1, I met with James in Jerusalem after I fled from Damascus. And then James drops out of sight for almost 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> until AD 44. Uh, if you recall, AD 34, Stephen was martyred and Saul of Tarsus stood on the side and held the cloak, held all the clothes so that the scribes and Pharisees and the crowd, you know, they could get a real good wind-up to be able to throw a stone at Stephen. So, and then he became a persecutor of the church. Ten years later, Herod. Now, Herod is almost a title, not so much, you know, it's a family name, but it's, you know, it's passed from down, so every, every succeeding Herod takes the name Herod. Uh, this is not the same one that tried to kill baby Jesus. Okay, AD 44, Herod, he's a king of Israel, friend of Rome, descended from Ishmael. He's not a Jew. He singles out James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, former fisherman, etc. One of the apostles, and makes a martyr of him to try and um, curry favor with the Jewish leaders. At the same time, he snatches up Peter. Peter is shackled to a wall behind lock gates and armed guards, and he's headed for a similar death the following day. You recall the, the book of Acts says, an angel appeared, and the shackles fall off his wrists, and the angel walks him through lock gates, past, past sleeping guards, deposits him on the street, and disappears. And Peter goes, Get me to the prayer meeting. So he goes across town to the home where they're praying for his safety and freedom. Get him out of there, Lord. And finally, when they admit him to that meeting, uh, he gives an account of what has taken place. And they say, wow, it's an amazing miracle. You're out of here. They bundle him up and they ship him out of the region to get him away from Herod's wrath. And his last words at that particular prayer meeting are, tell these things to the brethren and to James. By Acts 12, James uh, is openly recognized as the leader of the gatherings, the fellowships, the house churches, the, uh, the followers of the way, those who were Hellenistic Greek and had accepted Jesus, and those who were Jewish and they had a Messiah taken to their heart. It was, it was this blend of, of uh, those who spoke two different languages and lived sort of two different lifestyles somewhat, but they decided we are truly saved and going to be together. So by Acts 12, um, <clears throat> James is ready to write this epistle. So somewhere between uh, A.D. 45 and A.D. 49, over a five-year part of time, either in assembled snippets, which some people have proposed that his writings read like these are points out of multiple sermons, okay? 
or whether or not it's divided. And one of the people I wrote, Simon Kistemacher, went, no, 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 this is two sermons. He divides it down the middle, and there's 53 verses on this side and 54 verses on this side. Nobody knows. We'll get a chance to ask James someday soon. You know, what was this a, a compilation of points from sermons? Nevertheless, he wrote them out in, the, in that five-year period. Um, and uh, he's, he is, uh, he's, uh, he's trying to care for and write to those Jewish believers who were scattered, who had fled out of Jerusalem. So at 34, when Stephen was martyred, there was a, there was a pulse of, of Jews that just went, get me away, you know, I want to be a Christian and I, I don't want to get killed. And then in 44, after Herod, there's more that left. Okay? And when um, James wrote this, it is likely that his audience was primarily to the east, to Babylon, to Mesopotamia, to Syria, to perhaps the Phoenician port cities that they still had, you know, they still controlled a great deal of the transshipping in the Mediterranean. Uh, the island of Cyprus would have been a logical extension of that. But he was, his focus, having been written in Greek, was to Greek-speaking people in the East. This book of James, written, let's say, between 45 and 49, was the first book written of the New Testament. And he's writing to believers who are the first-generation believers after Jesus. You know, these, weren't, these were people who had heard about it from grandpa and grandma or uncles and aunts, that they had lived it, they'd experienced it. And when Paul and Barnabas returned from the province of Galatia, on that first missionary journey, they report back to Antioch, their sending church. And, and having rejoiced in what God is doing in the Gentile conversions and churches in, in the Galatian province, then Paul and Barnabas come up to Jerusalem to meet with James because they got a problem here again. Now, now Peter had already introduced the fact that Cornelius and his household, who were Gentiles, had accepted the Lord and experienced Holy Spirit. But this was a whole province that had responded, city by city, town by town, of Gentiles who were uh, filled with Holy Spirit, just like the Jewish uh, converts were. And so, if you'll recall, when we taught through Galatians chapter 2, James basically gives him the right hand of fellowship and says, essentially, your doctrine is pure. You got it. You taught them the right things. Right after that meeting with James, noted in Galatians 2, there's a, there's a council of Jerusalem because now we need to do something to enfold all these new believers. And so they have a council of Jerusalem with the elders and James is the one who compiles the wisdom of Holy Spirit from all the comments and he writes the letter. And in the letter he says, uh, there's no command to you to keep the law and circumcision. Huge issue. Gentiles do not have to become Jews. Gentiles are not expected to act like a Jew. Second, they had to abstain from meat offered to idols. So wherever the Gentiles lived, they were surrounded by pagan temples of you know, Roman, Greek, and animist, and ancient darkness. Okay? They all had sacrifices on altars, and when that uh, animal was done away with and the blood was spattered and spilled as part of their ritual. That animal's carcass went out the back door to the meat market. And so James says, abstain from meat offered to idols. That's 
that's stuff that has been dedicated. It's been dedicated to darkness. Leave it alone. Okay? And then he said to abstain from blood. Now, the Greek mystery religions particularly were bloody. Um, and so don't get yourself involved in these other cults and things like that where in human blood and animal blood and all that mixture of stuff, don't do that. Stay away from blood. Externally and internally, don't do it. And lastly, to abstain from all forms of sexual impurity. Again, those temples, all those temples, you know, they, almost all of them had a particular sexual bent where you could come up and you could worship with a prostitute. You could, you know, male or female, or both. Okay, it was a wicked system. And so James' summary of what the Holy Spirit said was, keep yourself pure, stay away from that stuff. It was after the Jerusalem Council that Paul wrote Galatians. Now, many scholars disagree. Um, I think they stand on really weak grounds. But they're trying to position James as being upset with Paul's writings. Paul said that salvation is by grace through faith. And, and James comes back and says, no, you, you, know, you have to have grace and an extension of life works for salvation to take its grip on you. And they try to set up this conflict between the two writers. The problem is the dating of the, of the writings don't line up. James is first, and Paul comes afterwards, and there's no conflict. Let me get to it. Uh, let me get to it. I can, I can, um, it, it fits here in just a second. Okay? Uh, Eusebius is uh, a, a character in Asia Minor. I think Ephesus is where he was. Uh, he was a historian, church historian. So he gathered documents. He gathered eyewitness accounts. He wrote them down and he published them. Okay? And um, he, uh, he reported that James, uh, as part of his leadership in Jerusalem, would go alone into the temple and fall on his knees and pray. And he would pray for the forgiveness of the people. Now, every time in the Old Testament where the word people is spoken, that's always referring to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. And it, I'm sure it broke his heart that Messiah was present and they rejected him. And he was longing for Jews to turn and recognize Jesus for who he was. And second, he's surrounded by new converts who are trying to figure out how do I walk a new way. How do I, you know, and, I, and when you do that, you make mistakes, and you sin. And so he's praying for both the whole lost, if you will, unresponsive Jewish population, and for those who've accepted Jesus, and are, they have some problems. So he's praying for their forgiveness. And he did it so often, and he did it for so long, that he developed these massive calluses on his knees. And they called him camel knees. Uh, they also called him James the Just. Now, Josephus was a Jew that was hired by the Romans to write a history of their conquest and presence, their governance, if you will, in Palestine. And it is Josephus who tells us of the martyrdom of James in A.D. 62. So this is 12 years after the Jerusalem Council. Um, he would not be a young man. He would have been quite, you know, for, for, his, you know, for his age, he was, he was getting on, okay? I mean, A.D. 62... Festus, the Roman procurator, died. Now, a Roman procurator it was the one who had the power of life and death. If you remember Pilate, who was also a procurator, the Jews 
raged at Jesus and wanted to kill him, but they couldn't do it because of Roman law. They had to take Jesus to Pilate to get the death sentence. All of a sudden, there's a power vacuum. The Roman procurator is dead, and the new guy hasn't come. So the high priest, Ananus, the high priest, he pounces on the opportunity to wield this death penalty to finally just get to this James. Drags him in in front of the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders, and accuses him of violating the law, in which he said, you have led Jewish people astray by pointing them at the Messiah that you claim to be Jesus. That's a violation of the law. And he was, he was uh, found guilty and, and headed out the door to be stoned. Now, Hegesippus is also a uh, historian. He wrote an alternate report of this, which was, which was included by Eusebius. And Hegesippus says that the scribes and Pharisees hustle James up on the roof of the temple, the pinnacle, up on top. And they, they demand that he renounce Jesus. And his response was, just like, just like Stephen, with a loud voice, he proclaims that the Son of Man, this Jesus of Nazareth, was God the Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, you know, the, the promised one of old who has come to be, the, to be Messiah. And uh, with that, this, they fell on him. They seized him and they pitched him off the roof of the, of the temple. Didn't kill him. I mean, he, he landed splat, but it didn't kill him. And so to finish the job, they come running down and start picking up stones. And they're stoning him, but in the process, uh, one of the temple workers who was a laundry, he worked in the temple laundry, and he, he was known as a fuller, okay? A laundry worker, he had, he had a club that he used to beat out dirty clothing in a, in a, in a, a bin to get it clean. Took his club, struck James, and killed him. So arguments have arisen that the clear, accurate, Koine Greek in the text of James could not have been written by a Galilean peasant, so to speak. Somebody from out there. The, they, looked at, they looked at Galilee as if they were the Bubba's. You know, the people from the bayous, you know, the uneducated, you know, couldn't speak good, know-how, nothing English, Hebrew, nothing. Okay, they just disdained Galileans. Okay, and that bothered, bothers the Jews, and it bothers scholars. They're trying to figure out, how could, how could he do this? Okay, now I'd mentioned earlier um, the possibility of a business background for James. Okay, um, and if, if that's true, perhaps he hired himself a secretary to dictate all this out, an amanuensis. The problem is there's no marks, and there's no styling, there's no smoothing of the text. That's that, you know, and apparently you can see that. Greek scholars look at that and go, oh, this isn't original. This was polished text to make it more readable. Okay, that isn't there. Okay, this is just James Hart. Just blah, there it is, in clear Greek. Okay. Uh, but when, when James rose to leadership in the Jerusalem church, see, the other possibility is he, he may have been a carpenter. Okay? He may. But when he became a leader in the Jerusalem church every day, every day, he would have had face-to-face -face contact with Greek-speaking believers in Jerusalem. So you better be able to do your shepherding duty 
and, and be conversant in that language as well. So whether he learned it in Galilee, whether he learned it in Jerusalem, and then it poured out across the page, James, they believe, is the one who wrote this text. Um, so um, who is James writing to in this epistle? Well, verse 1 of chapter 1 says he's writing to the, uh, the 12 tribes scattered abroad in the repeated diasporas. The scatterings precipitated by the Assyrian captivity, by the missing, you know, by the dragnet of the Babylonian armies, the translocation of population by the Greek overlords following uh, the death of Alexander the Great, or by Romans, who Romans would pick up whole populations, move them across the country, and establish a colony or a government center. So it was not uncommon to move whole people groups. You know, if you could get them to come in, and then you, those people would settle in and they would be tradesmen and, and they, would, they would sustain the, the life of a colony. And then there were obviously some families, I think the family of Saul of Tarsus was one of those, who came to um, establish worship. You know, they, Mark Sharona was the one who said, the father of Saul of Tarsus was the rabbi of Tarsus. And uh, he, they had emigrated there to establish a worship center in Tarsus. <clears throat> now, other Jewish households would have come to establish businesses to serve the Jewish communities in these Roman outposts and colonies or wherever they went. Here, the text of James points out that, uh, that the um, persecution uh, that was there was specifically because of, of their faith in Jesus. Now, the martyrdom of Stephen in 34, you get a pulse of, of people fleeing, a scattering of believers. Same thing in AD 44. Um, but when, when James writes, he's, he's writing very directly in an Old Testament wisdom literature style. It's like 54 commandments, um, 54 exclamation points um, in, in the text um, 40-some-odd 40, 40 Old Testament allusions, four direct quotes of the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's, he's very familiar with Old Testament, and then he lards his, his letter with all these Palestinian allusions um, to early and late rains, to the scorching east wind called the Shirako, where you start out with a green patch of oats, and the wind comes, and it's just brittle, dry, dead stuff, you know. Your orchard is dead. Your vineyards are dead because of the heat of that east wind. He talks about the chaotic nature of the sea and the sweet and bitter springs of water that were very common in the Rift Valley over in the, in the water, watershed of the Jordan. That's, that's all very common to the life in Palestine. His writings are very close to uh, what Jesus said and, and laid out in Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, the, the book of James was first noted by Origen, uh, theologian, scholar, in A.D. 254. Um, or, Origen was in the West. He was of uh, the Latin church. Um, but it's obvious that, that James' text, the text of this letter, had been copied and passed around and been used in the churches in the East, in Syria, and... Uh, um, probably in, in all the Greek-speaking churches, not, not the Latin-speaking end of it, the Greek-speaking churches, which were primarily in the East. Uh, in A.D. 100, 
there's a guy named Clement of Rome who wrote uh, a letter. He sent out a letter. Well, the letter reads like James. There's lots of points that are very, you know, they're right on exactly with what James had said. But he never quotes the same words. He just sort of reworked it and sent it out. But in, 50 years later, in the middle of the second century, there was a document called the Shepherd of Hermas, which is one of those anti, antinomian, whatever. <laughs> they're, they're the church fathers, the writings of the church fathers after Jesus, about uh, 150 A.D. And there's 13 direct connections between this document called the Shepherd of Hermas and the Gospel, excuse me, the, uh, the Epistle of James. They just line up straight across. Same points, same, not necessarily the same wording, but it's the same points. Now, the Shepherd of Hermas was determined to be an encouraging document, uh, but it was not scripture. They determined that the author didn't, you know, the, you know that, that particular document was not included in the canon of scripture, whereas James was. Uh, push forward 1,400 years, maybe, 1,450 years, and it drops into the hands of Martin Luther. Dr. Martin was, uh, you know, a Ph.D. Uh, in the Roman Catholic uh, teaching system and then came to faith out of his own desperation that what he was teaching, what he was learning was just not cutting it for him. And when he came to faith in Jesus, he came on the basis of faith alone. And, he, and he, his, the classic line for him is, sola fide. Faith alone. Then he comes up against James that says it's faith and works. And he goes, oh, this is a right strawy epistle. You know, fit for burning. It's like, get this away from me. This shouldn't be in the scriptures. Because he perceived that James' writings were so different from his own theological journey and beliefs. He, 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 sort of this dismissal of, get away from me. Okay, James is, is here. He's writing to simple fellowships that are settling in, in Jewish synagogues. And, and what has taken place in those, in those Jewish synagogues is, as soon as you convert to Jesus, you're off the employment roll. See, the synagogue was kind of the place where you could come and they would get you a job. You're off the welfare rolls. If you needed food, you needed clothing, you needed a place to stay, the synagogue worked that out as part of the Jewish community. You believe in Jesus, you're unemployable, and they don't feed you, and there's no support of any kind. You're still welcome to come and worship with them, but because of their faith in Jesus, there wasn't any help. So James is writing very directly, not so much about the life and teachings of Jesus. He's saying this flock that's dispersed out there, scattered, they have social issues, they have temptations, they have needs, and, and uh, some scholars feel that James is writing about a primitive form of Christianity, first century Christianity, before the work of Christ from eternity past to eternity future is laid out by Paul and Peter and John, who write after him. He's, he's dealing directly with Jewish people who are suffering in these synagogues. And he makes it really clear that it's the wealthy in the Jewish synagogues that are oppressing the believers. And so there are words he has for the, those being oppressed and those who are wealthy. 
Dan McCartney is one of the guys that I have come to really appreciate. Uh, I, um, I, I've been, I'm enjoying using his materials to help me get ready. Uh, and he says, James tries to convert his readers, not to a new opinion, but to an appropriate life. And a man named Cranfield wrote and said, James is focused on a genuine faith in God that must be evident in life. Finally, Brian Simmons, uh, some of you are familiar with him. He's the translator of the Passion Bible. Uh, trans, uh, he, he, he translated it himself and then published it. He says, James gives us a practical list of truths about what it means to be declared righteous. So we're, we're launched into this study on the book of James. And I'm going to encourage you to read the book once a week. It's five chapters. That means if you read a chapter a day, you've got a couple of days to... There's some wiggle room, okay? You can, you can, oh, I didn't make it on Tuesday, but I could catch it on Saturday. No, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then uh, at that time, um, ask Holy Spirit if the commandments and the exhortations from Holy Spirit through James are to be directed by Holy Spirit at your own life. In other words, let the, spirit, let the, let the text of Scripture speak to you. As you read, as you think, and then we'll, we're going to talk about that. We're going to, how do we apply this? How, you know, what does this mean? Okay? And, and to see how the Holy Spirit would apply it to our own faith walk. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, you're the one who breathed out these words that we find in James' letter. Please set to work in our hearts, too, so that we become like Jesus. Amen.